turn to Ezra chapter 2. If you're new with us this morning, first of all, welcome. Glad you're here. You should know that we started a new series on the book of Ezra last week. If you're wondering where Ezra is, it's in the Old Testament. After 2 Chronicles, you'll find the book of Ezra. It's before Nehemiah, Esther, Job, and Psalms. So it's about the 15th book in the Old Testament if you're looking for it. At Free Monday Free, we like to take books of the Bible and preach to them verse by verse because we really do believe that this book is the Word of God. And as much as possible, we want the Word of God to set the agenda. And so some Sundays, that means that because the Word of God is setting the agenda, we come to passages that are a little bit strange and hard to navigate. This passage is one of them. So let's pray, and then let's get to it here. Uh, Father, we do want to ask for your help this morning. I want to ask for your help this morning because this is a passage that maybe we wouldn't typically study. And yet, in your infinite wisdom, it's included in your word for a reason. And so we're praying this morning that you would be gracious to us and that you would help us to see the value of your word, that we would love your word, all of it, including passages like this one. So Lord, we just pray that you would be merciful to us this morning to help us to have ears to hear, to have eyes to see, to be able to understand the beauty of the good news of the gospel that's unfolding and the story of salvation that's unfolding even here in the book of Ezra. So God, we just pray that you would help us to keep our eyes fixed on you and you would help us to love your word and see it as good this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, ever since I was a young kid, I've always been a person who likes to read. In my younger years, I would often go to the library and check out a stack of books and devour them as quickly as I could. I was the type of kid who would read every book in a series or the type of kid who would read every book that was written by a certain author. From an early age, I was an avid reader. And although my reading habits have changed over the years, in large part due to technology and smartphones, both for better and worse, I'm still a person who enjoys reading. And it's probably a good thing because a large portion of my job involves reading. All that to say, between my job and reading for my own pleasure, I don't know how many books that I've read over the years, but it's quite a few. But of all the books that I've read, there are only a certain few books that I will pick up and read again. Now, some of those books are theological in nature, books like Desiring God by John Piper or Knowing God by J.I. Packer. But most of the books that I choose to pick up and read again are fiction books or non-historical fiction books that I just enjoyed reading for my own pleasure. Books like Peace Like a River by Lee Finger or Unbroken by Laura Hillenbrain. I've also read Where the Red Fern Grows multiple times, and I have no idea why, because it makes me cry every time I read that book. And I'm not exaggerating either. Even though I know how it ends, I'm a blubbering mess every time I read it. But the point is, there are only certain books that meet the standard necessary for me to pick it up and read it again. Now, of course, that implies that on the other end of the spectrum, there are plenty of books that I've read that do not meet that standard, books that I would not pick up and read again because I would have no interest in doing so. And one particular book that would fall into that category is a book of baby names I think we have buried somewhere in our basement. Now, when we started to have kids, we obtained a book of baby names somewhere along the line. I'm not even sure if we owned it or if someone let us borrow it or if we checked out from the library. So it's possible it's not even in our basement, not even in our possession. But at some point, we had a baby name book. And to the degree, the book was helpful when we were trying to think of baby names. But now that we're out of that stage of life of naming kids, the last thing I would want to do is find that book, pick it up, and just start reading from cover to cover. I mean, can you imagine if Tanya were to ask me for help and I were to respond by telling you I'm too engrossed in this baby book name to help right now? I mean, what if I told her, babe, I can't help right now because I just started a list of B names and it's a page turner. Bo, Blake, Brielle, Beckett, Barrett, Blakely, Brindley, Brady, Brooks, keep going, right? I can't put it down. These names are awesome. And wait until I get to the Ds. That's going to be incredible. If I told my wife that, I'm pretty sure she would call shenanigans on me. She would assume I'm just trying to get out of helping her. And that would be a reasonable assumption. 
Because the idea that someone could be completely engrossed in reading a list of names, that seems a bit far-fetched. And therein lies our conundrum this morning. In Ezra chapter 2, we primarily find a list of, you guessed it, names. Now, there are quite a few numbers, too, but it's mostly just names. And it's hard for us to know what to do with that. In the same way that we wouldn't pick up a, baby, a book of baby names, at least most of us would not, and just start reading for our own enjoyment, it's hard for us to get excited about a chapter in Scripture that's devoted almost entirely to a list of name after name after name. And yet, for some reason, in His infinite wisdom, God wanted this section with these names and these numbers included in His Word. And because every word in the Bible is intentional, and because every word is purposeful, our task this morning is to try to wade through these names and figure out, why is this in here? Because there is a reason why this passage is in the Word of God. And my hope this morning is that we would see that reason, or see the reasons it's in the Word of God, and in the end, we would actually be encouraged by this list of names and numbers. So that said, let's turn our attention to Ezra chapter 2 this morning, and actually, before we do anything else, what I want to do is read the, read the entire chapter together. Now, I know that seems a little bit daunting because there are 70 verses, and it is primarily names. But for reasons we'll talk about here in just a little bit, I think it's important for us to read through the chapter and hear all of the different names and numbers. Now, I'm just going to warn you ahead of time. There is a 0% chance I will pronounce every name correctly. I've listened to the audio version of this chapter several times to try to hear the correct way to pronounce names, but I have no confidence I'll be able to do so. But I'll do my best. And on your end, I just want to encourage you to hang in there. I know it's 70 verses, but most of the verses are actually shorter in nature. This will take us less than four minutes to read. In fact, three minutes and 53 seconds to be precise if my timing is correct, all right? So I'm going to ask you to stand now if you're physically able. If you're not physically able, that's perfectly fine. But if you're physically able, out of reverence for the reading of God's Word, we're going to dive deep here into Ezra 2. Here we go. The Word of God, the words will be on the screen. You can follow along as I read. You can read along in your own Bible. We read this starting in verse 1. Now these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. They came with Zerubbabel, Jeshua, Nehemiah, Sariah, Relaiah, Mordecai, Bilshan, Mizpar, Bigvi, Rehum, and Bana. The number of the men of the people of Israel, the sons of Perosh, 2,172. The sons of Shepatiah, 372. The sons of Arah, 775. The sons of Pahath, Moab, namely the sons of Jeshua and Joab, 2,812. The sons of Elam, 1,254. The sons of Zatu, 945. The sons of Zakai, 760. The sons of Bani, 642. The sons of Bebai, 623. The sons of Asgad, 1,222. The sons of Adonikam, 666. The sons of Bigvi, 2,056. The sons of Adon, 454. The sons of Adder, namely of Hezekiah, 98. The sons of Bezai, 323. The sons of Jorah, 112. The sons of Hashim, 223. The sons of Gebar, 95. The sons of Bethlehem, 123. The men of Netophah, 56. The men of Anatoth, 128. The sons of Asmaveth, 42. The sons of Kiriath Aram, Shepariah, and Beroth, 743. The sons of Ramah and Geba, 621. The men of Michmas, 122. The men of Bethel and Ai, 223. The sons of Nebo, 52. The sons of Magbish, 156. The sons of the other Elam, 1254. The sons of Haram, 320. The sons of Lod, Hadid, and Anno, 725. The sons of Jericho, 345. The sons of Sinah, 3,630. 
the priests, the sons of Jediah, the house of Jeshua, 973. The sons of Immer, 1,052. The sons of Pashur, 1,247. The sons of Harim, 1,017. The Levites, the sons of Jeshua and Kadmiel, the sons of Hodaviah, 74. The singers, the sons of Asaph, 128. The sons of the gatekeepers, the sons of Shalom, the sons of Atur, the sons of Talmud, the sons of Akub, the sons of Atita, and the sons of Shobai and all, 139. The temple servants, the sons of Ziah, the sons of Hashpa, the sons of Tabuath, the sons of Keras, the sons of Siah, the sons of Padan, the sons of Lebanon, the sons of Hagabah, the sons of Akub, the sons of Hagab, the sons of Shamlah, the sons of Hanan, the sons of Gedel, the sons of Gehar, the sons of Raiah, the sons of Rezin, the sons of Nakoda, the sons of Gazim, the sons of Uzzah, the sons of Pasiah, the sons of Besai, the sons of Asna, the sons of Menuhim, the sons of Nephesim, the sons of Bakbuk, the sons of Hakufa, the sons of Harhur, the sons of Bazuth, the sons of Mahida, the sons of Harsha, the sons of Barkos, the sons of Sisera, the sons of Tamah, the sons of Neziah, and the sons of Hatifa. I need a breath. The sons of Solomon's servants, the sons of Sotide, the sons of Hasafreth, the sons of Peruta, the sons of Jala, the sons of Darkin, the sons of Giddel, the sons of Shepatiah, the sons of Hatil, the sons of Pachareth, Hazabim, and the sons of Ami. All the temple servants and the sons of Solomon's servants were 392. The following were those who came up from Tel-Malah, Tel-Harash, Cherub, Aden, and Immer. Though they could not prove their father's houses or their descent, whether they belonged to Israel, the sons of Deliah, the sons of Tobiah, and the sons of Nakoda, 652. Also, the sons of the priests, the sons of Habiah, the sons of Hakaz, and the sons of Berizali, who had taken a wife from the daughters of Berizali the Gileadite, and was called by their name. These sought their registration among those enrolled in the genealogies, but they were not found there. And so they excluded from the priesthood as unclean. The governor told them that they were not to partake of the most holy food until there shall be a priest to consult Urim and Thummim. The whole assembly together was 42,360, besides their male and female servants, of whom there were 7,337. And they had 200 male and female singers. Their horses were 736, their mules were 245, their camels were 435, and their donkeys were 6,720. Some of the heads of families, when they came to the house of the Lord that's in Jerusalem, made freewill offerings for the house of God to erect it on its site. According to their ability, they gave to the treasury of the work 61,000 derricks of gold, 5,000 minas of silver, and 100 priest garments. Now the priests, the Levites, some of the people, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the temple servants lived in their towns, and all the rest of Israel in their towns. That is the word of God. And that is not for dramatic effect. I will say that's the first time anyone's ever clapped at the end of just reading a chapter. So I guess you guys love this chapter. That's encouraging to me. Now, what in the world do we make of a chapter like Ezra chapter 2? How do we process a chapter like this one? What lessons can we possibly take away from a list of names and numbers? To be transparent, when I started the sermon preparation process on Monday morning, I had no idea what I was going to do with Ezra 2. And actually, to go back a step further, when I was deciding to preach on the book of Ezra, this is the chapter that has haunted my dreams the most. But as odd as it may seem, the more I've studied this chapter this week and the more I've meditated on why it's here, the more encouraged I've actually become. I think there are some legitimate lessons to be taken away from this passage. More specifically, there are three things I want to draw your attention to this morning in light of what we read here in Ezra 2. Three lessons that we can gather and we can learn that I think will be encouraging for us. All right, so lesson number one, God is gracious and compassionate toward his people. God is gracious and compassionate towards his people. I think it would be easy for us to be so overwhelmed by the sheer number of names in Ezra 2 that we forget why the names are being listed. 
But as we see in verse 1, the people are listed here in Ezra 2 because they are coming back from captivity. In fact, look at the way the chapter starts. Chapter 2, verse 1. Now these were the people of the province who came up out of the captivity of those exiles whom Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, had carried captive to Babylonia. They returned to Jerusalem and Judah, each to his own town. Now at first glance, verse 1 made it seem like a travel update, as if the people of Judah were off on vacation and now they're coming back home. Isn't that nice? But in light of what we read elsewhere in the Old Testament, we know this is not the case. The people of Judah were taken captive and taken off into exile by the Babylonians because of their sin. God allowed them to be taken captive because they'd rebelled against him time and time and time again. And the fact that they're now returning from exile just 70 years later is not necessarily a sign that they'd straightened everything out and they were now wholly committed to following their God. On the contrary, as the rest of the book of Ezra will make clear, the people still struggled with sin, and they still struggled to live in a way that was honoring to God. So verse 1 is not an indication to us the people of Judah had straightened their lives out, now they can come home. No, rather, verse 1 is a reminder to us of God's gracious and compassionate nature. The people did not deserve to be coming back from exile, but because God was compassionate and gracious and faithful to keep his promises, he brought them back anyway. Now, this is the pattern we see throughout the Bible. The people of God sin, and they rebel against God. And yet, time and time again, when they come back to him, he is filled with compassion and mercy. He shows grace. And to be clear, this is not just something that we see in the Bible, although we see it everywhere in the Bible, but it's also something that we've experienced on a daily basis if we are followers of Christ. Even as a Christian, how many times have I said or done things that were sinful and clearly dishonoring to God, and yet he did not strike me down on the spot. He did not immediately rain down his justice on me as he, would have, as he would have had every right to do. But instead, he showed mercy. On an even bigger scale, I was once God's enemy. My heart was filled with hatred towards God's commands and his rules. As Romans 5 would say, while I was still his enemy, Christ died for me. Christ took the punishment while I was still far off. He died for my sins, even though I was a rebel. And the same is true for you if you are in Jesus Christ. At the core of the gospel message then, and at the core of God's heart, is grace and compassion and mercy. We do not deserve to be right with God. We do not deserve to have peace with God. We do not deserve to have our sins forgiven. And yet because of God's initiating love, those of us who are in Christ are now right with God. We have peace with God. Our sins have been forgiven. So if you read verse 1 of Ezra 2 and think to yourself, well, isn't it nice to get an update on the travel plans? Then you're missing the precious heart of God here. The people are coming back from exile because of God's grace. The people are coming back to build the temple because God is compassionate. The people are coming back and returning to their towns and to their land because God's steadfast love is unending. And in light of that, my question for us this morning is, in view of this grace that he extravagantly gives all the time, not just in Ezra 2, but everywhere in the Bible, what types of people ought we to be? Well, first and foremost, it would seem to me that we ought to be people who are filled with gratitude and humility. Gratitude in that God is so gracious to us, humble, knowing that we deserve nothing. But it also seems to me that we ought to be people who are filled with grace and compassion towards others, given that this is God's disposition towards us. As he has been to us, so we should be to others. Now, in saying that, I understand there's some complexity here. When we start talking about grace and compassion and we start getting in the neighborhood of forgiveness, there are some real complexities. 
And I'm not saying here that forgiveness is an easy topic. I'm not saying that we just need to ignore sin. I'm not saying that we need to be naive about the motives of others. I'm not saying that we should never put up boundaries to protect ourselves. What I am saying, though, is this, that our fundamental disposition, in light of the way that God has treated us, in light of who God is, our fundamental disposition towards others should be one of grace and compassion. To borrow a phrase I've heard before, we are first sinners, second sinned against. Now, it's true that some will sin against us and hurt us in profound ways. But let us never forget that we sinned against the holy God. In fact, that was our greatest problem. Not that others had sinned against us, but that we'd sinned against him. And yet he was willing to extend his grace and compassion toward us. We are first sinners, second sinned against. Because of the grace that we've received, we should be quick to extend grace to others. Now, here's the truth. That's much easier said than done, isn't it? It's easy to want grace and compassion from others when we mess up, but it's much harder to give grace and compassion to others when they mess up. And yet, in light of the grace that we've received, in light of God's compassion toward us, we should be quick to extend grace and compassion toward others. My son Dawson has actually taught me a ton about this type of compassion and grace. As a dad, I regularly blow it. I wish I could tell you that I was always on top of my dad game and always doing the right thing in parenting, that I always was patient and that I'm always keeping my cool and I'm always demonstrating my love for Christ. I wish I could tell you those things, but I can't because they're not true. I regularly mess up as a dad. In fact, I feel pretty confident in saying that in terms of sheer numbers, I lead our family in most apologies given. Now, I hope some of that's a, a mark of the convicting work of the Spirit. But I also have to admit that the main reason why I lead our family in apologies is because I mess up a lot. And when I sin against Dawson in particular and have to ask for his forgiveness, he's always quick to forgive me, but he's always quick to remind me how much he's been forgiven also. In other words, Dawson doesn't just give the quick obligatory, I forgive you. He remembers how much he's been forgiven. He reminds me of that, and then he grounds his forgiveness for me and the forgiveness he's received from Christ. And what I'm arguing this morning is that this should be the attitude of every single person who genuinely knows God. As Ezra 2 reminds us, our God is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He's bringing back the people from exile even though they don't deserve it. He blesses them with land and material goods, a place to worship even though they're still sinners. And in light of that, let me encourage you, first and foremost, run to him to find compassion and grace. But also, let me encourage you, be the type of person who displays his attributes towards others. Be a person who's filled with grace and compassion. So that's the first lesson from Ezra 2. God is gracious and compassionate towards his people. Now, the next two are involved just one verse. The next two are going to be more thematic, looking at the whole of the chapter. So lesson number two is this. God works through real people living in real locations. God works through real people living in real locations. Obviously, there are a lot of names in Ezra chapter 2. Sometimes the names are categorized by family. Sometimes they're categorized by geographic location. And in all the names mentioned in Ezra chapter 2, we are reminded of this, that God works through real people living in real locations. And he does so in order to bring about his purposes. What you need to understand is ultimately what happens here in Ezra 2 is a continuation of God's bigger plan, which would culminate in the birth of Jesus Christ and eventually the death of Jesus Christ and his resurrection too. Think about this. Jesus was born in a small town in Judah. Many of the biggest events of Jesus' life would occur in Jerusalem. So when we read that the people are coming back to Jerusalem and to Judah, mention of those names should get our attention. 
These places are kind of important in the overall storyline of Scripture. The unfolding plan of salvation is taking place right here in Ezra chapter 2. Now granted, it would be hundreds of years before Jesus would show up on the scene. But part of the reason he was born where he was and why he died where he did is because of what happens here in Ezra 2. And what happens here in Ezra 2 is real people moving back to real locations. And in that, we're reminded God is working through real people living in real places to accomplish his plans. And as evidenced by the many names listed here in Ezra 2 that most of us have never heard of before, oftentimes the people of God are unknown and unremarkable. But listen, that should be encouraging to us this morning. Maybe you've sometimes wondered, what am I doing in Fremont, Nebraska? And how does my life fit into the bigger scheme? I'm sure there were times when Jorah or Ono or Lod, all mentioned here in this chapter, I'm sure there were times where they wondered the same thing. What am I doing? And yet here they are, mentioned in this chapter as part of God's eternal word and the unfolding drama of salvation history. Do not discount that God works through real people living in real locations who are often unknown to bring about his purposes. God uses us. Listen, if God wanted to, he doesn't need any of us to accomplish his plans. To quote Acts 17, he's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. God doesn't need us to share the gospel. He doesn't need us to pray. He doesn't need us to give money to advance the kingdom. He doesn't need us to worship him. But in God's mercy, he allows us to be a part of his plan. He allows us to be a part of his mission. He allows us to join in on the great drama of worshiping him for all time. We get to be a part of what he's doing. God works through unknown and imperfect people living in real places to accomplish his purposes. So listen, I don't know what it is that you do on a day-to-day basis. Now, obviously, I know what some of you do in terms of your job or school or those types of things. But I don't know what you're doing on an hour-to-hour basis each day. But here's what I do know. Wherever you are and whatever you're doing, God works through people like you to accomplish his purposes. God has you here for a reason. He works through real people living in real locations to accomplish his plans. And so listen, don't discount that he has you here in Fremont, Nebraska. And he has you here doing what you're doing for a reason. Don't discount that he has you here this morning for a reason. God loves to work through random people, just like he does here in Ezra 2, to accomplish his purposes. And just like he was doing back in Ezra 2, he's still doing the same thing today. He's working through people living in real locations to accomplish his plans. And that's the second lesson from this genealogy. God works through real people living in real locations. The third lesson is a related one, but probably the one I was most encouraged by this week. Lesson number three. No matter who you are, God sees you and he knows you. Now here's the reason why I wanted to read through Ezra 2 in its entirety this morning. I wanted you to hear each of the names listed in Ezra 2 so that you could be reminded God knows. Listen, I know next to nothing about the people that are mentioned in this chapter. Take, for example, the names mentioned in verses 3 to 10. In fact, just look at verses 3 to 10 quickly. They're, they're not long verses here. The sons of Perosh, 2172. The sons of Shepetah, 372. The sons of Ara, 775. The sons of Poth, Moab. Namely, the sons of Jeshua and Joab, 2812. The sons of Elam, 1254. The sons of Zatu, 945. The sons of Zechai, 760. The sons of Bani, 642. And we could keep going. Listen, I don't know anything about any of those people mentioned in verses 3 to 10. I have no idea what their families were like. I have no idea what they looked like. I have no idea how much money they had or what jobs they held. 
Maybe the Zakai mentioned in verse 9 had a great sense of humor. Maybe he was the type of guy that everyone would gather around the campfire and they'd just say, tell us stories, Zakai. Maybe Ara mentioned in verse 5 was a math wizard. Maybe he was the type of guy that if you had trouble with your taxes or accounting, you're like, we need to go see Ara. Maybe Benai mentioned in verse 10 had the best hair in town. Maybe everyone looked at that guy and was like, man, that dude has some good hair. Maybe Parosh mentioned in verse 3 was a great fisherman that everyone, if they wanted to learn how to fish, that's the guy they went to. I have no idea, and I know that you don't know either, but that's the point, isn't it? God does know. I think that's one of the reasons why a list like this is included in Scripture. The names and families mentioned in Ezra 2 are largely unknown, largely insignificant, but they were not unknown to God, and they were not insignificant to Him. He saw and He knew. About three-quarters of a mile from my parents' house in Iowa, there's a fairly sizable cemetery. When we go back to visit my parents, I'll often go on a run up to the cemetery and then run a couple of loops around the cemetery as well. Now, despite the fact that there's a giant hill there, which isn't great for running, and aside from the fact that you're running in a cemetery, which is kind of weird, it's actually a great place to run. You don't ever have to worry about traffic. There's some pretty good shade on the route, and in general, it's pretty peaceful. But on occasion, when I get done, and in particular when I'm waiting for Noah to finish a few more loops than I'm running, I start to reflect on where I am. And specifically, I start looking around at the various grave markers located around the cemetery. And I often start wondering about the stories behind those grave markers. I'll look at one, for example, someone last name Pearson. They died in 1935, and I'll wonder, man, what what was their life like? Or I'll, I'll see someone who died young, and I'll wonder, what was their story? Or I'll see a couple buried next to each other, married for six years, and I'll wonder, what was their marriage like? Or I'll see their family lost a child, and I'll wonder, well, how did they handle that? How did that change them? And on and on it goes. I could walk through that entire cemetery, and with the exception of my grandparents who are buried there, and maybe a few other people that I know, the reality is I know very little of anyone's story. I don't know what their life was like. I don't know what type of person they were. I don't know what struggles they faced or what joys they had. I don't know how they handled adversity and difficulty. I don't know what made them tick or what motivated them to get up in the morning. Only God knows. But the point again, and this is something I think we can derive clearly from Ezra 2, is that he does know. Within three generations, your family will likely forget you. If there's anyone from your family lineage who's living in 2150, there's a good chance that not only will they not know anything about you, they won't even know your name. I know that sounds discouraging, but I want you to know, I don't think it is. Because the one who matters, the one who knows all things, he does know. And he sees and he cares. We may think the list of names here in Ezra 2 is worthless and a waste of our time. I mean, does anyone really care that Jorah had 112 descendants and Hashum had 223? Well, apparently God cared. Because he cared enough to put it in his word, right? And I think that has huge implications for us this morning. Implication number one, you are not forgotten. You're not forgotten. Sometimes, let's be honest, sometimes it feels like life on this planet is really lonely. It feels like no one knows your pain. It feels like no one knows the true you. It feels like you are alone. But Ezra 2 reminds us, he knows. He sees and he cares. He knows your story. In fact, as Psalm 139 reminds us, all of our days were written in his book before one of them came to be. In other words, he doesn't just know your story as it unfolds. He's not just watching and saying, oh, didn't see that one coming. that's, That's not the story at all. In fact, he knows your story before it even happens. Get this, he knows you better than you know you. So you're not alone. 
Maybe it feels like you're alone right now. Maybe it feels like no one knows or cares. But it's not true, because he knows and he cares. As evidenced by all these names listed in Ezra 2, you're not forgotten. And that's one of the implications of this idea that no matter who you are, God sees you and he knows you. But I think there's a second implication. If God is the one who sees us and knows us, and if God is the one who will remember us when everyone else will forget, then it only makes sense that we would live for him and we will live for his purposes now. To go back to the cemetery for a second. For the person who died in 1923, it doesn't really matter how much money they made, does it? It doesn't matter where they lived or what type of job they had, or what they looked like or how successful they were. The only thing that matters now is did they know Christ and did they live for Christ? Did they live for the one who formed them and made them and knew them? Largely speaking, we all live lives of anonymity. Even now, only a small fraction of a small fraction of a small fraction of the people on this planet who are living right now know us. And 100 years from now, all of us will likely be completely forgotten. And again, that would be discouraging if not for the fact that he knows. As Ezra 2 reminds us, he knows the Talmans and the Cubs and the Hodavias. He knows you too. He knows your struggles and joys. He knows your sin and your victory. He knows your pain and suffering. He knows you. He sees you. He cares about you. So implied in that is that we should live for him. Let's live for his purposes. Let's live to make his name known. Let's live to draw closer to him. Let's live for the joy that's found in Jesus Christ. Listen, everyone else may eventually forget about you, but he will not. As the presence of all these random names in Ezra 2 reminds us, to God, every family and every individual is significant. And hear me, that includes you. And by you, I don't just mean a generic you. I mean you. You're made in God's image. He formed you in your mother's womb. He sees you and he knows you. And get this, he cared enough about you to send his son to die for you. Jesus died on the cross he died for the sins of anonymous people like us. So that if we would turn to him in saving faith, we could be rescued. Which, by the way, if you've never done that, I would plead with you, make today the day that you do. So listen, I get that Ezra 2 is a little bit intimidating at first. It's kind of like someone telling you that they're going to give you their favorite book of all time so that you can discuss and process together, and then they hand you a book of baby names. I mean, what are you supposed to do with that? But the more you study a chapter like Ezra 2, and the more you meditate on the content of the chapter, the more you realize that God has a chapter like this in the Bible for a reason. Ezra 2 helps us to see that God is gracious and compassionate towards his people. And not just in a generic way, but gracious and compassionate to specific people living in specific locations. Along a similar line, Ezra 2 reminds us that God works through real people living in real locations. And he does so in order to carry out his good and perfect plan. But perhaps most encouragingly, Ezra 2 also reminds us that no matter who you are, God sees you and he knows you. You're not forgotten, you're not forsaken, you're not unknown to him. So the next time you're tempted to skip by a chapter like Ezra 2, first of all, I get that temptation. But let me plead with you instead to lean in. To lean in so that you can see the heart of God. And so that you can see how he cares and loves his people. Because I'm convinced as you do, as you lean in, you'll be reminded that he does love his people. And perhaps you'll even be motivated to live for his glory then. That's my hope. That's what I hope we do in response to Ezra 2. That we would see the heart of God, see his love for us, and then we would live for his glory. Let's pray.
God, we trust that you have what you have in your word for a reason. And so we come to you today just acknowledging Ezra 2 is probably not in our wheelhouse of, of passages we normally study. And yet, it's greatly encouraging. It reminds us of your grace and compassion. It reminds us how you work through your people. It reminds us that you see and you know. And so this morning, I pray that we would just be encouraged by all those realities. That we would be reminded you are a great God who cares and loves your people. And we would live for your glory. It's in Christ's name. Amen.